Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I got to know Major Garrett when he was the White House correspondent for Fox, and I was the senior advisor to President Barack Obama. So you can imagine that that wasn't necessarily a comfortable relationship. But the truth is, Major was a really fine journalist. I always felt like he dealt with me fairly and tried to do a straight-up job of covering the White House, and he still does today as the chief White House correspondent for CBS News. I sat down with Major in Houston, Texas, the other day, and we had a chance to talk about what it's like to cover the White House in the era of Trump. Major Garrett, good to see you. Great to see you, David. Fellow podcaster. Yes, indeed. It's the wave of the future. It really is. It's shocking to me, uh, actually, that people uh, make the time for podcasts. And it, 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 in a sense, what I really like about it is that uh, we're, we've been told again and again that sort of rat-tat-tat, bite-sized stuff, you know, that's all people can tolerate. I think people are sort of rebelling against that. They are. They are evolving, rebelling, and adapting. And I often tell people what I love so much about my podcast, The Takeout, is it shatters the false compression of television news. Mm-hmm. The false compression of television news is, and you and I lived this life, I would talk to you for 15 minutes yes. on camera. Seven seconds would show up on the air. And I would say to myself, there's seven minutes of other things that are fascinating, that are really important, that there's no room for. And because the next day And comes, I would say that's 15 minutes of my life I'll never get back. <laughs> Precisely. Precisely. So many people have said that after meeting me. <laughs> so podcasts break through all of that, though. Yeah. And no. people love my show, and I sure, I'm sure they love this show because it's the entire conversation. Yeah. Well, conversation is good. So let's start this one by uh, just taking you back to San Diego where right. you grew up. Both your folks worked for AT&T. They did. Your mom was an engineer. Yes, uh, without a college education. So interestingly for my mother, she started as a phone operator, as almost every woman did back in the 50s. At that time, becoming pregnant was a fireable offense. So as soon as you were were announced to be pregnant, you were fired and you were not given your job back. Now, my mom went back to work three times after all three of us were born. I was the third child in our family. So she always got her job back. After me, she stayed. And became adept enough as a phone operator to get attention. She moved up into low-level engineering and then, slightly in a progressive mentality, AT&T said, you know, you have real promise. We'll send you to our schools in Morristown, New Jersey, near the Bell Labs, where they trained all their engineers. So without a college education, my mother became a long-distance engineer. And when she retired, after 42 years, was in charge of every long-distance call from Los Angeles to Arizona. 
And that is something I will always be proud of. Yeah, that's an admirable story. Yeah, so I grew up uh, with the greatest advantage of anyone my age could have, a mother and a father who walked out the door every day carrying a briefcase each. So Mm -hmm. I was utterly and completely nonchalant about working in a world where women were powerful, strong, and capable. That didn't intimidate me or frustrate me in any way. And I've always said it's the greatest advantage I've ever had in my work life. I should ask you, where did the Garrets come from (laughs) originally? (laughs) So all I know, I I don't know a lot about uh, my family history on my father's side. He grew up in Baytown, Texas. Uh, He migrated to California. Didn't speak a lot about his family in Texas. Uh, I never knew any of my relatives in Texas. Both of his parents had died long before I was born. I think his mother died shortly after I was born. So I don't know a lot about that family history. I know a lot more about my mother's side of the family, the Andersons, uh, Moline, Illinois, and the Seafelts, and Iowa, uh, Swedish immigrants both, Swedish and German. Uh, Most of my people on my mother's side are Swedes who migrated to Moline, Illinois. My paternal grandfather, uh, I've seen the registration papers at Ellis Island, seen his signature. Uh, Like so many Swedes, he got on a boat, came through Ellis Island, got on a train, was told to sit on the train until someone got on the train and screamed two words, John Deere. He didn't Mm -hmm. speak a word of English, but he knew what John Deere was. So he sat on a train from New York to Moline, Illinois. Someone got on the train and said John Deere, and he got up and got off. And worked at the John Deere factory. And worked at the John Deere factory, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, your own childhood, uh, I read somewhere that that your interest in journalism manifested itself in a weird way where a friend had a typewriter (laughs) in a garage. Well, so I was born in 1962. You can't be a child of that era and not be captured by the news of the world that was happening around you. Uh, I'm of that same Yeah, so I was six years old in 1968. Two assassinations. We were sent home from school both times. I really wasn't sure what was going on, who these people were, but I knew something very big was happening. In addition, I had two cousins fighting in Vietnam, really fighting, one in infantry, one in artillery. I remember packing boxes for my two cousins, sending them off with my mother. Did they the get point. back? They did, both did. And mm-hmm. my, my other, my, one of my cousins, Craig, who's deceased in Barrington, Arlington National Cemetery, went back for a second tour, mm. volunteered for a second tour. And then stayed in the Army. He was part of that junior corps of officers post-Vietnam that Norman Schwarzkopf and Colin Powell have written books about who looked at the Army after Vietnam and said, this Army is in very serious shape, and if we leave, it could fall apart. So these junior officers committed their careers to helping the Army stick together after Vietnam. And he's one of the great authentic heroes in my life, Craig Silcox, buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Um. So I became fascinated by the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents took the San Diego Union Tribune, the Los Angeles Times, one of the few families in the neighborhood to do that. We had two incomes. It was easier for that to happen. My parents got all three magazines, too. All three. And you read them. I when... did. I, I, I won't say I read every word, but I was pretty, mm-hmm. I was pretty fascinated I by was it. I was the same way. You know, when I, the newspaper would get, we lived in a, a housing development in New York. Newspaper would get dropped on the doorstep and. Just outside the yeah. door, I would first thing I would do when I woke up in the morning was run out there, get the paper. And now I confess I, I read it from the sports section forward. <laughs> so did I. Yes, but box uh, scores first. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's why I learned my mathematics. <laughs> so, um, 
Uh, and then I guess the moon landing was another sure, big event. Sure, of course. How could it not be? I mean, yeah. everything, the moon landing, Watergate, Vietnam, all of it was just coming hurtling at us. Uh, and look, I'm living in suburban San Diego. There's not a journalist in my family in any direction. No writers, no reporters, nothing like that. No one involved in politics. But I was just taken by it. And I remember vividly as a kid, if there was a fire engine that screamed past the house, I would always run outside and chase it. I wanted to either be at the tape line or just inside the tape line. That was sort of the theory I had about life. And So you go over to a friend's house. At age 13 years old, years they old. have an IBM Selectric typewriter. Why do they have that? Because his parents did something very unusual in the mid-'70s. They created a home business, and they converted their garage into the basis of this home business. And so I'm over there on a sunny Sunday afternoon in San Diego, of which there are many. <laughs> We're supposed to go out and ride our skateboards, of which there were many. And he shows me this room, and I see almost lit up, like Hollywood style, this desk with this amazing machine on it, a self-correcting electric typewriter. And uh, you sat down and started churning out fake news. Fake news, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Some would say I've done that my entire career. Uh, but no, I, I know just, one I guy who stories. might, I don't know. <laughs> I made up stories. I would, I would say to myself, all right, make up a Washington dateline about the Ford administration. So I would have in all capital letters, Washington. President Gerald Ford today did, and I would just make I'd write five or six graphs, take it out, and write another story. And Meanwhile, your friend's waiting to go skateboarding. Right. An hour and a half later, he comes in, what is, what is wrong with you? <laughs> That's his only sentence, and it's a very apt question. What is wrong with you? And I thought to myself, I've lost track of time. I've loved nothing more than pounding out these imaginary stories about this place in Washington and a president that I don't know anything about. Maybe they're out to pay attention to this. <laughs> and and when you went to high school, you became yeah editor of the news, newspaper, not the full editor. Uh, editor of the front page, the most important news section yeah. of the paper. And I worked if you're on the yearbook edit a page. That would be the exactly good one, yeah. yeah. And one of the things I did, which you might find interesting, is uh, I tried to take the front page outside of the high school. So I spent six months trying to get an interview with Mayor Pete Wilson. Yeah. He would never yeah. give me an interview. Never. But you did get his chief of staff. I got his chief of staff, yeah. Otto Boss. Yes, and I and I also interviewed the chairman of the County Board of Supervisors, a guy named Roger Hedgecock, mm -hmm. who then became mayor. Do you still have those pieces? I can find them, yes. Mm -hmm. But th that was my whole Did thing. Did they commit news? No, not in any grand sense, no. <laughs> but my goal was to take uh, the Madison High School Talon, James Madison, we were the Warhawks, so the paper was called the Talon. Mm -hmm. Pretty clever, I thought. Yes. And brought the mayor, the, the, the chief of staff of the city of San Diego to the front page. And they were kind of annoyed, but also intrigued by this irrepressible knucklehead who wouldn't take no for an answer. So when, it, when irrepressible knuckleheads decide <laughs> that it's uh, on colleges, uh, yeah. you ended up at the University of Missouri mm -hmm. because of the journalism Because school. of the journalism school. It was the best decision I ever made in my life. The most important four years of my life. Uh, I had figured out by then, growing up in San Diego very close to paradise on planet Earth and very placid and very yeah. comfortably middle class that really wasn't preparing me and did not prepare me for understanding what life in America was about. And if I ever aspired to be a writer in America, which I was aspiring to be even at that tender age, I had to get out of San Diego. Not that I don't love it and not that there's a, not a great deal to you love about family San Diego. there. No, I don't. Mm -hmm. um, I have some, a couple of friends. My son is a stu student at the university of San Diego and I get back uh, as often as I can. But I knew that that was not the place and only the place to build a career as a writer. So I had to get out and going to the Midwest, 
going to the University of Missouri, going to that great journalism school. Great journalism school. school. Yeah. First in the world, as we like to say there, first and best. Yeah. Well, working at the University of Chicago, I can grant you that because there is no journalism <laughs> school at the... But Northwestern the would give us a run for they the money. They sure would. They, yeah. would. they would complain about yes. it, but that's their problem. That's their problem, not yeah. mine. But so what? tell me about that experience because um, you weren't... Uh, you had deficiencies as a reporter, and you had drill sergeant yeah. pro- professors who who forced you to confront those. Certainly. So it was not my mother's idea that I go so far away from home. Uh, my parents had gotten divorced when I was in tenth grade. There was a lot of instability there. Uh, it was uh, important for me. Was to- that a? Was that? I should ask you. Was that? I mean, I went through a similar thing. Yeah, was my that, parents got divorced, and my father had a nervous breakdown. Oh, it was very, my. it was very difficult. It was a very tough stretch of time, my my junior and senior year in high school. And there was a big part of me that were you alone, of, or did you have I, siblings? I had siblings, but they're much older. My brother's five years older. My sister's eight years so older. They were long out of the gone, house when gone. this yeah. was going. Yeah, yeah, it was from it was so my, my mom and I had to deal own, with this huh? ourselves. Yeah, and it was very difficult. Um, and there was a part of me that uh, wanted to get away from that mm-hmm. to strike out on my own and put some distance between myself and that experience. And that was a big part of the pull for the University of Missouri for me, not only the J school, but getting that distance and getting some separation. Yeah. So my mom said, well, sure, you can go this far away from school, but of course you want to be a broadcaster, right? And I said, no, I want to be a newspaper man. She said, well, you're going to be a broadcaster because I want to watch you on television. <laughs> and she said, and since I'm the finance director of this operation, <laughs> that's really what I want you to do. So I said, okay, mom, so I get to school. Were you a good talker back then? Very good talker. Uh, mm-hmm. Much better talker than writer and a much better talker than speller. And I'm still a much better talker than I am a speller. Uh, but yeah, I, w- I competed in speech contests and I gave the graduation address at elementary school and junior high school. And mm-hmm. so I was a very good talker. And that's what my mom wanted to have me do. So when I go to the school at the University of Missouri, I don't work for the student newspaper, the man eater. I work at the student radio station. I become assistant news director. One of the people who reported to me, Elizabeth Vargas. Oh, no kidding. True fact. Uh-huh. Not just a fact, but a true fact, as one of my journalism professors used to say. <laughs> and so I take my first semester of broadcast journalism in the journalism school, and I discover I hate it. I hate everything about it. The false compression, the mechanics, the wires, the lights, yeah, and, how it changes the, people. The, the mechanics were probably more difficult. Much more cumbersome and clumsy and heavy. Yeah. Against everyone's advice, and I mean everyone's advice, I quit broadcasting and switch over to newspapering. Well, for two years, I had been writing broadcast copy, all capitalized, phonetically spelled radio copy. And the first class I have to take is basic AP-style newspaper writing. I'm a complete failure. I, I don't know the style book. I don't type. I keep typing in all caps, all phonetically. It's all my brain is completely miswired. And I'm on a trajectory to fail that class. You have a professor, Hal Lister. Hal Lister, yes, who takes my pleadings somewhat seriously, but not too seriously. He said, look, you're, you're going to fail, so there's nothing I can do about it, and there's really nothing you can do about it. I said, no, no, that's not the conversation we're going to have. We're going to have a different <laughs> conversation. And the conversation is, is there anything else I can do? He said, all right, I'll give you this. If you put on my desk at 9 o'clock every Monday morning three separate stories on the three Sunday shows— so meet the press, face the nation. And then at the time this week with David Brinkley. Oh, yes, yeah. It has to be on my desk at 9 a.m. every Monday morning. All three 
every week from now until the end of the semester, I'll reconsider as long as you make progress getting better at AP style and all the other rigors of this class. We'll have a conversation about it. Get to the end of the semester. I've got a solid C. I've now pulled myself out of failing. But I said, Professor Lister, I, I can't take home a C. <laughs> if I was seen a newspaper class, my mom would say the experiment's over. Back to broadcasting. I said, you've got to believe in me. You have to take a risk. I've shown you everything I can show you, but you've got to believe that there's some passion this kid has. And this worked, huh? It did. It did. <laughs> I was, it was, it's like politics. It sounded like spin, but I believed it, and it was true to me. Yeah. It was for my best interest, so it sounded like spin, but it was true to me. And the hard-bitten old journalism professor somehow recognized that. He huh? did. And he never he never gave me an answer. He said, "Oh, do you think ever? About did it. you ever? I don't know if he's still around. He's not. He's he's passed away. But did I've let him know over the years. Him? Yes, and I let him know over the years how very vital uh, he was yeah. and remains in my life. Because I'm, without that B, he sends home a B. I can continue, and the experiment goes on. I'm curious because you've sat in the Sunday show chair from time to I time. Have. Uh, what you learned watching those Sunday shows back in the day. The most important part of the Sunday show format, to me, and uh, it's pretty clear now that I'll, I, 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 I have reached the end of my Sunday show format experience, uh, <laughs> is that the guests should feel honored to be there with you. You should not feel honored that they're sitting there with you. Okay. So don't be cowed. Don't be cowed. But don't be disrespectful, but understand that this is a place where news can and should be made. And it's the requirement of the host to constantly reinforce that understanding. This is a big stage, and this yeah. is a big moment, and the questions are serious, and the answers better be serious. You know, it's interesting because um, in the day when you were writing about that, you know, you think of a David Brinkley who was, you know, a legend in broadcasting. Mm -hmm. So that message was implicit. You're sitting there with David Brinkley. Right. So you'd better bring your A game. Exactly. Um, but but there aren't that many there aren't there there aren't these figures in journalism anymore. We you know, we elevated a whole generation we did. or 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 two of broadcasters who were sort of iconic figures. That's not the case anymore. And look, a, a very credible argument could be made that was an outsized icon-making time, uh, and we sort of elevated people and oversimplified and over-homogenized news in this country to our, possibly our, our detriment. An argument could be made, a critical academic argument could be made. It also simplified things, and it gave people a sense of place. David, I don't know how often you get this question, but I get this all the time. Where should I get my news? What should I believe? Yeah. It's a very hard question to answer. Yeah, I don't have. Yeah, an and we also we had we that. had no you know but we had no a hierarchy, cable. but we we had a hierarchy and we had limited number of outlets and everybody heard the same conversation. More or and less. these people were invested with a great deal of trust. Walter Cronkite, Certainly. David Brinkley, uh, and when the sh the network news Frank broadcast Reynolds. turned its attention towards something, it was a way of telling the country this matters. Yeah. And in the hierarchy of our news making decisions, this is now a thing. That was slow to happen on Vietnam. It was slow to happen on civil rights. But once it did... Walter Cronkite, coming back from Vietnam, 
uh, and casting doubt on the effort was what did LBJ say when you've lost Walter Cronkite? You've, lost, I, the you've lost the country. Right. And things began to change dramatically after that. We don't have that kind of pillar of journalistic rectitude anymore. We don't have that person who embodies. We have people who embody it in certain political perspectives. If you talk to lawmakers, they'll say, the most influential people in my party, I've had several Republicans tell me this, even on my podcast, most important Republicans aren't even in Congress. They're not lawmakers at all. Yeah. They're talking heads. They're, yeah. They Rush, are Rush the ones right, who drive the politics in my district, in my state, and in my cloakroom. Yeah. And they think to themselves, that's probably ought not to be the way it is. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to talk to you about this uh, a little bit more down the line, but I don't want to lose your own <laughs> story. story here. You, uh, <clears throat> one of the... Uh, uh, one of the uh, storied figures at the University of Missouri uh, Journalism School was its founding founding dean, Walter Williams, Walter Williams who, yeah. who wrote something called The Journalist's Creed. Yes. And you still keep that. I do. So uh, there were two bookstores at the University of Missouri. Uh, and at one of them, the one right across from Ellis Library, right in the center of cam- campus, University Bookstore, it was called then, it's closed now. I remember soon after getting into the journalism school, which was kind of a stretch for me. I had a very mixed success my first two years in college, so I just eked my way in. You needed a 2.75 GPA, I had a 2.77, and when I say eked, I mean eked down to the second 100th of a grade point average. <laughs> I said, I'm in. So I need to get a creed. I need to get the creed. So I have it with me. And so, like all stores at that time and still to this day, a little semi-fake wood frame, Got the thing, tucked it in there. It's been on my desk, everywhere I've worked, every job I've had, my entire career. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's a uh, it's a stout uh, uh, statement of mission uh, that uh, really lays uh, forth the notion of journalist journalism as a public trust. Yes, but journalism's also a business. Uh, I think about this a lot because, you you know, I started in, in journalism yes. and I was raised in journalism and I believe in journalism and I believe in the journalist creed. Um, but uh, what we, we have such fierce competition today. You know, when I started in journalism, there was this hard wall between the newsroom and the business side. Absolutely. And if the business guys came in, the editors would throw them out. Right. Um, but that's... That, that's long gone now, and now there's this fierce competition for readers, for eyeballs, for tweets, for, for all of this. And so, you know, how do you reconcile the, the journalist creed with the business's need? It is so that's difficult. It good is, alliteration. That's really good. Yeah, that's thank beautifully, you. beautifully. Yeah, thank you. Just occurred Poetically to me. Poetically rendered. Like, it just happened right here. The magic just happened right here. As it so often does when <laughs> I'm in your presence, David. <laughs> it's the hardest question for the industry to answer, and, the, and it has come up with incomplete answers for now going on two decades. Um, to give a short history of how community journalism has collapsed as a financial model. Think about it this way. For those of you in the audience old enough to remember classified advertising, that's how you sold your old golf clubs, your old stereo, the begonias, the, the puppies, whatever. Three lines of agate type, $15, $20. 
every newspaper in every community banked that revenue all the time because it was, it was the a only huge place. source of 35 revenue. to 40% yeah. for most community newspapers. Right. People ask me all the time, did the internet kill newspapering? No, no. Craigslist and eBay did. Mm -hmm. And no newspapers adapted at a community level all to this technology. They could have. They might have harnessed that and brought that all in, but they never did. So you ask yourself, what business model can survive within a course of two to three business years, you lose 35 to 40% of your revenue? Answer zero. They can't function the way they had. Yeah. And you can't get away from the fixed costs of printing presses, trucks, gasoline. 80% of the costs are in producing editors. and delivering exactly. newspapers. Precisely. And when you lose that revenue source, you lose reporters, you lose editors, you lose a sense of mission, you lose ambition, and you lose the psychology of the idea of a resource for a community. Yeah. And, and all those things have diminished in the last 20 years. And the chasing of revenue to try to compensate for that has been largely futile. Most newspapers are a shell of their former selves. Yeah. Shells of their former selves. You st you started at uh, in at in Amarillo, Amarillo Texas, Texas. At a newspaper at a time when they were probably a little more robust. Sure, yeah, yeah. So I I was in Amarillo from 1984 to 86 in Las Vegas, the Review Journal from 86 to 88. John Ralston, the mm -hmm. outstanding journalist of all Nevada, a legend, one of my, one of my in dearest Nevada friends, political coverage, and creating a new model yeah. of newspapering on right a digital now. platform called the Nevada Independent. Yeah. And then I went to the Houston Post, and when I left the Houston Post to go to work for the Washington Times in Washington, all my friends at the Houston Post said, that paper's going to fold before the Post. I said, no, it's not. The Post will fold before the Washington Times. And it did. Why? Because it was up against the Houston Chronicle. And the Chronicle had the classifieds. And the not Post the Post, didn't. the Star. What? You're, you're talking about the Houston Post. Yes, I oh, was the, the Houston, Houston Post. Post. I thought you meant the Washington Post. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah the Houston yeah. Post was going to fold before yeah. before the Washington Times, and it L did. Let me back you up a second. Amarillo, your your first job. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody's first jobs in journalism are formative jobs. Absolutely. Tell me what that job would, did for you. I was a cop reporter. All right, and that meant getting up at four in the morning getting into the newsroom at 5. We had an afternoon edition and a morning edition called 30 County Sheriff's Offices every morning to find out if anything happened, check the police blotter, anything, weather, traffic accident, homicide, rape, burglary, anything, fire, all fell under my journalistic jurisdiction. And that's the best training for any kind of reporting yeah. imaginable because any error can not only hurt people, can insult people, and can get you into legal problems. Yeah. And you have to be absolutely precise. You have to double-check and triple-check everything. You and also I, have to be sensitive. And you have to, to be sensitive. To the real, these, these, these things are not just stories, but they're, in, they're, they're often traumatic events in people's lives. I remember when I was a young reporter, because I had a, blessedly, I had a great city editor who said, I know you love politics. We can put you on night shift. Right. I remember... Uh, being on the night, sort of police and disaster beat, and and calling uh, the uh, survivors of a victim of of a gun of a homicide, and they had not been told yet. They did not know. I had I informed them that their loved one had, and it was the most painful, awful thing. And you know, I 
you what you learn from these beats is that uh, peep, this may be your story for the day. This is a life-changing experience for someone. I've else. been asked many times, what's the most important story you've ever covered? And I always tell them the same thing. It was in Amarillo, Texas. It was a Sunday afternoon. That was when the event happened. The story I wrote happened on a Monday. Sunday afternoon, parents are driving home through a small residential community in Amarillo. There's a traffic backup. They're inching along to their home. They see that there's been an accident of some kind. They're police vehicles. And then there's a crumpled bike that they drive by, mm-hmm. which they recognize to be their son's mm. crumpled bike. He was killed by a drunk driver on a Sunday afternoon. I come in that next day. My city editor says, you need to call this family because we're going to write a story about the boy. I was 21 and a half years old. I said, I don't want to call this family. I said, you're calling the family and I want a story. Yeah. And I remember sitting at my desk staring at that phone for the longest time, looking at their number up in the phone book, having the number right in front of me and not knowing what the first yeah. thing or what to do. So I called, and I, I'm sure my voice was shaking. I said, I'm sorry, ma'am, I, I, I don't mean to trouble you, but I've been asked to write a story about your son so our community can know who he was. And she proceeded to tell me, and they sent over some pictures, and I wrote a story. Six months later, I'm at the police department, and I'm in the PIO's office, the public information officer's mm-hmm. office, and a woman walks by says, are you Major Garrett? And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, I'm so-and-so. And And she says the the boy's last name, which I don't remember. It was six months later. Mm -hmm. She said, I'm the mother of the boy you wrote about. And I didn't know what she was going to do next. I literally did not know what she was going to do next. She said, I just want to let you know. That's the only thing that's ever happened about that that gave me any peace. That's so nice, yeah. We sent that story all across the country to all of our friends and family. Thank you for taking note of the Seven-year-old yeah, life, yeah. my boy lived, yeah. and letting our community know who he was and what he dreamed to be. Yeah, I've never forgotten that. It may sound to some people sappy and maudlin. I've that never forgotten me, that story. Yeah. I've never forgotten that story because when we do our job right, we can do it well. These things are possible. Yeah, you can take a very difficult situation and treat it with well, compassion listen, all, and curiosity. You know, um, what I realized late in life is that. Um, uh, you know, stories are what it's all about. We're, and uh, being able to tell stories faithfully, sensitively. Uh, and accurately and get yeah. everything right and make sure you don't take any shortcuts and and just treat that as if it's about your life. Yeah. What would you want the seriousness to be treated about your life story? And I've tried never to forget that. So tell me about the transition to Washington. And what did you, were you always headed that way? That was my big goal, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, as fast as I could get to Washington to see if I could hack it. And I wasn't sure if I could. I was pretty doubtful, actually. That's why I took the job at the Washington Times. An enormous risk. Enormous risk. If I had understood at the time what a great risk it was, I never would have done why it. Why was it so risky? Because the Houston Post at the time was the 14th largest newspaper in the country. I was there... After only four years of, of being a journalist, I did really well. That was a great job. Mm-hmm. I was a general assignment reporter covering the biggest stories, hurricanes, plane crashes, earthquakes. I was on the front page all the time, won several awards. I was doing great. And I leave that paper to go for the Unification Church back to Washington Times. That's the, right, yeah. The, 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 the conservative rag of Washington, D.C., the Washington Post 
wouldn't even use to scrape the mud off its shoes. Yeah, now that you put time. it that way, that was nuts. It was it was insane. Yeah. <laughs> but the whole my whole point was I had to get in that press room covering Congress as soon as I possibly could. So I arrived around to age 27. Maybe I was 27 and a half. Now that's very common now. I don't need to tell you that. Political reporters arrive on campaigns at much younger ages now than they did back then. But then I yeah. was like an oddity, a well, complete oddity. more outlets and you and these kids are cheaper. Much, much cheaper. Yeah. So there was a big risk. Um, but I started covering Congress, having never covered a city council before, let alone a state legislature. It was an enormously difficult transition. I had a learning curve that was as steep as I've ever encountered in my life. Did that through the 94 election cycle, but got to know the politics of House and Senate races yeah, pretty well. well. You, you were there at a momentous time because right through the Gingrich revolution. revolution. Yeah, which I wrote a, a book about, uh, right. uh, looking back on it 10 years later, called The Enduring Revolution. One of the better books, I would argue, about that period of time. Learned a lot about politics, rose to deputy national editor, and had a career that was locked in. Then I quit to write my second book and not work there anymore because and, I wanted to see if I could do something else. And, and then I went to U.S. News and World Report. Yeah. And then I thought I'd reached the absolute apex of my career. The one time that I was at, the first time rather, that I was at U.S. News and World Report and Michael Barone knocked on my door and asked me a question about politics, I literally said to myself, I've made it. Yeah, Michael Barone, the, in, the encyclopedia. Right. He asked me a question. About politics, mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, I don't need to accomplish anything more in life. I've topped out. I'm, I'm, I'm totally good. But <laughs> there was but, more. But you, uh, after your momentous decision that you didn't want to be a broadcaster, yeah, you go to CNN. Correct. Why? Interesting story. Uh, was this just payback to your mom for, <laughs> no. for the investment? <laughs> no. Uh, so. Uh, as is somewhat well known, I'm I'm divorced. My first wife uh, was in television. Uh, she was actually offered a job by Frank Sesno to cover the White House. She turned it down, quite to my surprise. And then Frank Sesno said, "Well, he was the bureau chief at CNN at the yes. time. Who should I hire?" And she said, "I don't know. I just turned the job down. I'm not going to tell you who to hire." He said, "Well, let me ask you a different question. Who's the best reporter you know?" She said, "My husband." He said, "Who's that?" Major Garrett. What's his number? She says, what are you talking about? He goes, look, I'm out of, I'm out of options. I'm going to find somebody for this job, and if you don't want it, I'm going to call him. And he did. And that's how I got into television. Just like that. Just like that. <laughs> you, it was, it was like the most colossal accident. I wasn't participating. I mean, I wasn't agitating. I wasn't advertising myself as a future television reporter. I was completely content with my life at U.S. News and World Report at that time, late 1999. But it was, but it's also that's a, I mean, going from print to television is a is a leap, yeah, a huge leap. And if I had to watch those live shots now, I might go to the UN and allege a human rights violation. <laughs> Although you covered, you were there at the White House at a last year, the Clinton administration, time. yeah, and then I was covered the first year and a half of the Bush administration. Including 9-11. I was with him in Sarasota. I was with him on that fateful morning that none of us will ever forget. I uh, sat down with David Gregory recently, and he was recounting that. We what are your there. recollections of, uh, of, uh, of that day? Well, we all have recollections of what we saw and how we couldn't believe what we saw. That's all very similar. The thing I've never forgotten and never will forget about that David, is the understanding that for those terrifying 
moments after the both airliners struck the Twin Towers, the vast pyramid of information that a president possesses was collapsed. And essentially, for a few moments, the President of the United States and everyone else knew just about the same number of things. I've never lived through that experience before. I've never lived it since. But for those two or three hours, when they're literally trying to assemble a coherent understanding of what this is, what it was, and what it might also represent, the distance between the knowledge base of the President of the United States and someone living in Keokuk, Iowa, was about the same. Because I went to people and I said, what is happening? What are we doing? What is going on? And they looked back to me with a kind of resolute but nevertheless blank stare because they didn't know. Yeah. And the dimensions of it seemed at, at, at simultaneously, manifestly and measurably and visibly horrible but also incalculable. No one knew if there were, how many, how many jets? What other targets? What other places? Is this Islamic induced or motivated terrorism? Is it something else? Is it nation state? In those terrifying hours, anything seemed possible. And I remember being live on the air and we were getting, I was getting in my ear as a correspondent for CNN. The State Department had blown up. There was a huge explosion in the middle of the National Mall. It turned out neither one of those things were true. But in those moments, yeah. it sounded like it could be true. So you didn't know, and they didn't know, they didn't how know. widespread and no. pervasive this was. No. And as someone who's been in a White House that has had to endure crises that mm-hmm. come in, there is that moment where your, your knees are buckling, but yeah. you've got to solidify them. You've got to put your knees beneath you and lock them in place so you can walk. It takes time. Yeah. And it took them a full day, if not more, to now, lock you, their knees and be able to walk. Were you were, did, was there a pool that uh, went with him? Yes. Yeah, so I was, not in, I was not in the pool that day. I was in the other classroom, the hold, while he was in there reading the children's right. book. So I didn't see the look on his face. I didn't see when the Andy people. Card, his chief of staff, came in, in and told him what yeah. had happened. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How... Uh, how how did that uh, change the White House? How did that change uh, the White House press corps? I mean, the Bush presidency was sort of meandering along, right? Uh, before that, it, it's it's before that. The most important thing that uh, that this White House that that White House had been focused on. People forget this was stem cell. Mm-hmm. What was the regulatory policy going to be on stem cells? And the White House wrapped itself around the axle for six weeks on stem cell policy. And then there was this big address that George W. Bush gave from the ranch about how he came down on it and how they all thought they'd perfectly threaded the difficult political needle. No Child Left Behind had been, had been working through the process. There'd been some economic stuff, but it was kind of not really moving anywhere rapidly. And it didn't seem to have a force of idea or And his, idea number, his or numbers purpose. weren't particularly right. good. And I will tell you, David, this is, I've mentioned this before. After the recount, I, I think whenever you cover the American presidency and you're ever in the presence of the president, you always have to worry about the worst possible thing happening because the American president is always a target. Right. You can't ever take that out of your mind if you're a reporter. You just can't. Right, which is why you have protective pools. Right, which is why we're always there. 
I worried about that more after the recount. Uh, I worried about that. I worried about the sense of division in the country and, and if the legitimacy of the presidency would be believed and if people, some person didn't believe it was legitimate, might strike out in a very violent way. I was always worried about that. I was never worried about 9-11. Yeah. I mean, I just wasn't. And then that came at us. And the idea of the country having to reconcile itself to this, an administration that would never, for its entire term in office, and the next president and the current president, escape that shadow, escape that specter, mm-hmm. I felt it almost immediately that, that we had entered a new era of warfare that would concentrate the national mind, concentrate national treasure, concentrate the national security apparatus for a very long period of time. And for any child, as my children, 95, 96, and 2000, as they frequently tell me, Dad, we've never known a time when we were not at war. Yeah. And it's a big deal for them. It's a big deal for them. And I, I have to be reminded of it sometimes. You said something a second ago about, um, uh, about the divisive nature of the recount in 2000, mm-hmm. the election between Al Gore and George W. Bush. Um, how big was that in the sort of evolution of the politics that we see today? Because obviously we've become more, more and more polarized, and there are lots of reasons for it, uh, some of which have to go to um, social media, right. cable television, all of that stuff. But how much traces back to that one event? I won't say all of it, but a good portion of it does trace to that. Supreme um, Court ending that election, right. five to four vote, Bush becomes president. Bush becomes president, and then you have this idea, this very real concept that every vote does matter. Yeah. And that's why we saw a vast increase in 2004 turnout. People forget that 17 million more people participated in 2004 by casting ballots than did in 2000. John Kerry did an extraordinary job. She, he found seven and a half million more votes than Al Gore did. Highest for any Democrat in the history of the country. Only need, problem need is- a few more in Ohio. George Bush yeah. found nine million yeah. more. Yeah. But, and you mentioned the recount in social media. Can you imagine what the recount would have been like had yeah. we had social media? Yeah. Well, or lots of other things. Lots of other things. But the recount was a dividing line in the sense that the country felt like its systems, its underlying processes weren't as well understood and upon scrutiny didn't look all that great. Right. And I think that created a psychological sense that maybe our systems aren't all that good or maybe... Well, I also think that there was this sense that um, something, certainly on the part of Democrats, but... Um, it started a cycle of suspicion about the system and legitimacy of institutions generally. Right. Um, I think that uh, we don't talk about it much, but that was a big event. And I think, you know, it hobbled Bush uh, throughout his presidency. Sure. It it, it hobbled Bush. It it brought into question not only his legitimacy, but the sense of uh, his own interaction and connection to the country. Right. And... That's a damaging thing. And I guarantee you, George Bush wishes he would have won outright. Any president would have wished yeah. they had won outright. But when the fight was on, they fought it. And I would say there was another also secondary. Also election, by the way, uh, now we've seen another where 
the majority of the country voted one way and the result was another. Right, in the Electoral College, which, and you know this, that's the rule of the game. Yes. And you have to understand the rule of the game to win the game. Yes. And I have, I have no tolerance for people who electoral say... Electoral college is the rule. educated. Right. And, <laughs> and, and I have very little tolerance for people who say, well... That shouldn't be. Well, it is. Yeah, although it's interesting before the last election, uh, you know, and you know this because you covered this, uh, that Donald Trump was, was the one seeding, he was, he was sowing the doubts. About, yes, it, it's, it's, a, it's rigged. The system's <laughs> rigged. This electoral college is rigged. <laughs> and Democrats were saying, we've got this blue wall. The electoral right. college assures yes. us. Uh, and then shortly after the election, Hillary Clinton called for the dissolution of the electoral college. Right. I mean, it all, the old saying, where you stand depends on where you sit. So you made a, uh, speaking about where you stand and where you sit, you, you made a decision in 2002 to go over to Fox News. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you make that decision? Because I really admired Brit Hume. And I really admired his approach to news and the news network at the time talked about fair and balanced and telling both sides and I wanted to give that a try a chance and I believed I could do that as long as Brit Hume was there and I was at Fox for eight years um, got most of the stories on the Democratic side of the political spectrum because I had established a reputation. You co-authored a couple of books with Tim Penny. With Tim Penny, a Democrat, Democrat from uh, southeastern Minnesota. Um, and I was well-known among Democrats, uh, well-respected among Democrats. And so when the Fox truck would roll up, Democrats would say, oh, God, who's that? And they're like, oh, it's Major. Oh, okay, well, that's fine. And Fox understood that. Roger Ailes understood that. I was a great asset for him in that sense, in that I could – write and produce and create really interesting stories. We first met in 2004 when you were working for John Edwards. Yes. You know, that's when our first enga- our encounters in New Hampshire. Because uh, I was always covering the Democratic side of the aisle, whether it was Senate races, House races, or presidential campaigns. So it was a great experience for me. I've, I, I make no apologies for my life at Fox. I was good for them. They were good for me. And when it ended, it ended. Not asking you to make apologies for yourself or or them for that matter, but how do you assess the role that Fox has played? They 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 have consolidated essentially the Republican side in that you know fifty percent of Republican voters right. say they their primary news sources is Fox News, and they have cleaved very close to this president. They have. Um, how much is Fox News news today, and how much is it uh, an organ for the president, or does that divide into day parts? It's well, it's it's harder to make those distinctions than it was when I was there. Um, far more of the shows on Fox now are personality driven, and far fewer are reporter or reportage driven. There was a better balance of that. There was a better distribution of reporters and reportage as opposed to opinion and personality when I was at Fox. That has shifted. That ratio has shifted much more visibly to personality-driven and editorial content-driven at Fox. And it has, after a while during the Republican nomination process, not being sure what it was going to do with Trump, decided what to do with Trump and become a, if not an advocate, 
a certainly a perpetually sympathetic ear to the point of view of the administration, a resource for the administration. Most of the people I see who speak for this administration, I only see one place, Fox. Mm, right. So I have to watch it relentlessly because that's the only place they show up. Though we make repeated requests for interviews, as does NBC, as mm -hmm. does ABC, as does CNN, as does MSNBC, but Fox gets the, the figures. So I don't really think anyone needs me to sort of describe the Fox role in the ecosystem around the Trump White House. It's pretty clear. It's as clear as can possibly be. The president's Twitter account reinforces that. Where he shows up for phoners reinforces that. Where administration yeah, most officials presidents show up. start started their morning with their <laughs> their intelligence briefing. He starts it with Fox. He and starts friends. with Fox and Friends, right? Uh, and and so that's all very very clear. Um, and. It is a reality for Republicans. It's a re reality for the Trump administration. There are counter-realities. And we're seeing them manifest themselves in elections across the country, special elections, the governor's election in Virginia, mm -hmm. where there's a reaction. And but, one of you the know, things in, this, in, it, in the media environment is their actions and counter-reactions. Right. But the, you know, we talked earlier about uh, the time when, you know, we had a national conversation. Right. Now we have these virtual reality silos where you really get one side of the story and, uh, and you don't invite other points of view. And in other words, you're, you're, you have your opinions affirmed instead of informed. Not only that, you get that through whatever you're watching on television. And because the algorithms are created this way your social media feeds do exactly the same thing. Even if you're not watching cable news, right. you are being fed because the algorithms want to please you. Self if, you're, if you're involved in consuming political news, the algorithms will send you things that more match your likes and retweets. So you create your own silo and the algorithm builds the silo even higher for you. Yeah. And what I tell people when I'm asked about this I say, look, I can't tell you what to do or what to read or how to read, but I can give you one piece of advice. If from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep at night, everything you've consumed in terms of news, whether it's on your social media feeds or what you read or what you watch, leaves you feeling completely satisfied, utterly reinforced, and completely content, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. You're doing it flat wrong. Yeah. You are only baking in your own perspective of the world and the world is changing and the world as it changes needs you to change along with it to be the most productive involved engaged citizen you can be if you care about that it's, and it's, since you're consuming political news in theory you do care about yeah. that but that's work it's work yeah yeah as we, as the candidate you worked for used to say you've got to get out of your comfort zone yeah you know, uh, we talked earlier about the competition between journalism as a trust and business. I mean, this is a good business model uh, for for Fox, you know, appealing to progressives is a good business model for MSNBC. So the incentives are very much aligned with pursuing those kinds of agendas. Yes. And the problem I have with that is... And I noticed this even when I was at CNN, the crowding out of reporters and the crowding in of people who just talk, who have a certain 
or even a vaguely informed analytical perspective. Yeah. We don't even put professors on who actually have decent research and bodies of knowledge because they're not exciting enough. They're not pugilistic enough. So we have all these phony fights and all this trumped up, forgive me, mm-hmm. argumentation, and reporters find themselves watching people talk about what they were only allowed to report for a minute and a half in which they have 30 minutes of reporting they could offer and their own legitimate reported perspective. But no, we hand that over to semi-informed analysts because that's somewhat easier or more convenient or more watchable television. I would actually much prefer, and I have hazard a guess that our audience would prefer more informed, long-form critical journalism that tells them things on an ongoing basis. But those trend lines have long since over moved my theoretical notions of what ought to be or should be or would be profitable programming. Why did you leave Fox? I'd been on cable news for 10 years, uh, averaging on a given day 20 live shots a day. That treadmill had run me out. And as you well recall... So nothing about the... Well, as you recall, uh, I'd gone through a very stressful period covering the Obama White House. For a period of time, my network was assailed by the White House as a propaganda well, arm yeah. of the Republican right. Party. Now, none, no one at the podium or in quotes given to the New York Times or the Washington Post ever said, I was the problem. Right. But that was cold comfort for me because I was, the most, I was the most visible editorial representative of that network who had to show up in that White House every single day. And that was, without a doubt, the most stressful period of my career because I wasn't, as I've said before, I wasn't a warrior for Fox and I wasn't at war with the Obama White House. I was just trying to serve the audience that relied on me every day to tell the most accurate, penetrating, and interesting story about the President of the mm-hmm. United States on that given day. That didn't mean it was without stress. It was enormously stressful. Uh, well, and you and I had a, had a meeting in your office where you said, it's really not about you, Major. And right. I said, David, that doesn't do me any good. Right. Well, and I was wrung out by that, too. Just that whole process. And the tension of covering the Obama presidency and Fox uh, was a part of the conversation in my own mind. But I really had I really exhausted myself on television. And I wanted to see if I could find a place that would take me on as a writer and go back to the thing I love to do most in journalism, which is, is right. And National Journal came along and gave me exactly the right place to do that. And it was a, a great move for me. And uh, I have no, now, not one single regret. Now you've uh, resumed doing television in the restful, reflective environment of the Trump White House. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Congratulations, Thank man. Yeah. I made a great strategic move. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, CBS offered me, in, at the end of the 2012 campaign, a job I simply could not turn down. Chief White House correspondent for CBS News. That puts me in a pantheon of people who are legends and justifiable legends in our industry. I also want to see if I could do that, if I could hack it. I guess I have. And what... Uh, tell me about uh, tell me about this president and covering this president because we've never really seen anything like it. No, we haven't, and um, it's a great challenge. It's a great experience. Uh, it's very exhausting. It's very exhausting. It's emotionally taxing because you never know what's going to come at you at any given moment, and you have to be prepared 
every moment for literally anything. The Secretary of State could be fired at any moment. The National Security Advisor could be fired at any moment. The FBI Director can be fired at any moment. And you have to be ready for that. And so you have to have this sense of emotional readiness that takes a toll. That's one part of covering the, the Trump presidency. The other part of it is, and I try to make sense of this in a book that I just finished writing, which will be out in mid-September, small commercial here, folks. Yes, Nick, give us the title. Mr. Trump's Wild Ride. Mm-hmm. I think it says it all. Yes, yeah. Uh, the first year of the Trump presidency, and one of the things Sounds I say fair. in the book is, it is a wild ride, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's all bad. A wild ride can be thrilling, it can be fun, it can make you throw up, but it could also make you really happy. And it happened. And what I try to do in the book is explain the things that happened in that first year that are likely to have the most long-reaching consequence. I have a whole chapter on deregulation, for example, not yeah. the most sexy topic in the world. You and I were world. talking about this earlier uh, before we, 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 we started recording. The, there's a lot going on that's pretty profound in terms of the appointment of judges, uh, yes. in terms of deregulation. More federal circuit judges appointed and confirmed in the first year in the history of the American presidency and a Supreme Court justice confirmed, and a, 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 a means by which if there are future vacancies, the president will fill those with justices who reflect his very conservative approach to jurisprudence. That's a big deal, yeah. long-ranging. And I go into great detail in the book about how the idea of this list came about. It was a genuine political innovation that Trump deserves some credit for putting out a list as a potential nominee. No one had ever done that before. I explain in pretty elaborate detail what the genesis of that was, why it might matter, how it might influence Republican candidates long after Trump. Mm-hmm. I have a whole thing on why health care failed, why it is an enduring part of the Obama legacy, why on immigration policy, one of the when things... When you say health care failure, you're talking about the repeal of The repeal of, the, of it, right. right. The, 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 this concerted effort that Although consumed the, the first they're six still months. hacking away they're at They're hacking it in away ways. at it, precisely. But their big structural lift fell on of itself, and I try to explain why. The mm-hmm. tax reform, the tax cuts, all those things. So there's a great deal that catches the public's eye about this president constantly, relentlessly. And yet parts of government move on, and they are less sifted than they would be under another president. And I think part of that is just because of Trump's personality, his sense of constantly churning everything in the media environment. The other part of it is strategic. If you're looking over here, you're not looking over there. And if you're not looking over there, there's things that can happen. There's always that question about Trump, which is how much is strategic and how much is impulsive? (laughs) I don't have an answer. Nobody does, do they? (laughs) No, because his impulses are who he is. Yeah. I often tell people— He believes very much in his own instincts. And he acts on them. Yes. And he, he, whether, it, whether it's firing someone or picking up his, his phone and, and tweeting something. or And as importantly... Must be hard to work for. Yes. He is hard to work for. Can't and imagine, it, actually, as someone who worked in the White House. It, it, it wears people down. It really does. Because uh, they don't know how... I mean, there, is a small, there are a small number of people who have been around Trump long enough who know how to weather these storms and know how to sort of gauge just how mad he is or what he's likely to do. But there's a whole other realm, far larger realm of people who don't. In fact, that inner and they're coterie worn, they're has, worn down. has been shrunken. Yeah. But there have been a lot of leaks out of the White House, uh, more than I think uh, 
I can remember yes. why. Because there are rivalries, there are turf battles, and this is not a cohesive team. It never has been a cohesive team. One of the things that I learned watching the campaign that you were involved in with President Obama was not only were you a cohesive team, you were a reinforcing team. I mean, you all believed the same thing and believed on behalf of the same person. Right. It was, I'm sure you've said this, it had to feel remarkable. It yeah. had to feel completely different. Yeah. That's why it was such a terrible prelude for me covering the Trump presidency, yeah. because they're not cohesive. They're not locked in arms. They don't have a central set of beliefs. Half the people who work for the president don't believe in his trade agenda. I mean, flat out don't believe in it. Some of it don't believe in his national security agenda. That's a big problem. Yeah. And they know strategically that we will take as reporters any point of friction about Trump at all. Policy frictions in the Obama, even the Bush era, we're like, oh, well, maybe I can get one reporter interested. In who and then maybe I get one little story out there. Any part of friction for Trump? Everyone will take and everyone will jump on and everyone will salivate over because he is this outsized persona. He checks four boxes that we've never had checked before by an American president. He's a celebrity in his own right, pre-existing. He's a billionaire, pre-existing. He's a TV star, separate from his celebrity status, and he's a social media phenomenon, and he's a president. Five boxes. Yeah. And because of that, he has a, a, an intensity of coverage and an intensity of fascination that far outstrips any person who's previously occupied that presidency, at least in my lifetime. Do you think he has been, and I, and I, I have to end it with this question, but uh, he constantly uh, complains about his coverage and that he hasn't been treated fairly. Do you think he's been treated unfairly? I think the scrutiny is so intense but he invites so much of that intense scrutiny himself. Fair, unfair, he would like more credit for the economy. Guess what? Bill Clinton wanted more credit for the economy before the 94 midterms. Yeah. George Bush wanted more credit going into the 2004 re-election with John Kerry, which was very difficult for not, not being a terrorist well, attack. Well, I think there are plenty of people around Obama Barack, who President would Obama say he wanted did a lot of credit. heavy lifting to get us to the point where he could hand off a right. growing economy. A, gr a growing and stabilized economy, right. absolutely. President Obama would like more credit for that. Right. No American president I've ever covered believe they received sufficiently nuanced credit for all the things that they accomplished. The presidency is sort of like that. You're thinking about all the fires you're putting out and problems you're solving. There's only so many headlines in any given Especially day. Especially when you're starting fires. Right, and the president does. And some of the stories he denounces are stories he, fe he fed himself. I guarantee you, when Maggie Haberman was attacked by Trump on Twitter for saying his legal team was terrible, I guarantee you Trump gave her that story and then denounced it yeah. because he churns it. Yeah. And it was true. Everything Maggie wrote was true. It turned out to be true two or three weeks later, but that's one of the things that happens with Trump. Right. He spouts off, says something, you report it, says, that's not true. Well, it may not be true that minute, but it eventually becomes true. We've been writing the H.R. McMaster as out story for six months. Finally, it was true. Yeah. It's, 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 it's so odd to live in that environment where you can do really hard, aggressive reporting and have really good sources. I've said this before. You can have five incredible sources, really tapped in, connected people, and be 100% right on a Trump story and also and be 100% wrong. Yeah. 
because he'll make he'll, he'll make a decision. Decide. Right. He'll, he'll 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 completely go the other direction <laughs> because he was feeding somebody in a misdirection move, or he'll just change his mind. Well, Major Garrett, the wild ride continues. <laughs> Indeed it does. Good to be with you. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.